Welcome to the 66th episode of the No Degree Podcast. Jeremy Linen is a certified executive chef. He originally went to college for architecture. He took engineering classes and realized he didn't want to sit at a desk reading blueprints all day. He wanted to be a chef. He was told he wasn't going to have a good life and that he was throwing it away. He didn't give up on his dreams. He worked at a couple of chain restaurants before working at SeaWorld. He worked at the Omni Hotels and then worked at the legendary Greenbrier restaurant. He then worked at a few country clubs. He learned the ins and outs of the restaurant industry. He put it in his dues. He read books about chefs, cuisine, and did what he could do to advance. He took his career seriously and learned as much as he could. Listen to follow Jeremy's journey. Visit nodegree.com to start your journey. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash nodegree. Every contribution is appreciated. This show wouldn't be possible without you. Let's get this show started. Welcome to another episode of the No Degree Podcast. Today I have Jeremy Linen, and I'm going to have him introduce himself. Hi, I'm uh, Jeremy Linen. I'm a certified executive chef. Uh, I work at a country club in Atlanta, Georgia. So what does an executive chef do? Well, it depends on the day. It can vary quite a bit. I oversee a staff of about 22 people um, between cooks and dishwashers and sous chefs, and I have somebody that does the purchasing for me. So depending on kind of what's going on, I can be doing anything from, you know, prepping food to working on the line to writing menus to writing schedules, working on budgets, meeting with uh, one of my superiors for strategic planning, helping to plan events. Um, I could be sitting in on a meeting with one of the member committees. I could be meeting with a member client to you know, help plan their daughter's wedding or this, that, or whatever. I could be going to the grocery store to go buy something because you know, we got shorted on a delivery and we're out of it and we need it. Or I could be scrubbing out a fryer because it has to get done and I'm the one that's available to do it. You know, Depending on the day or even the moment, there, there's any variety of things that I, you might catch me doing. Wow. So, I mean, it makes sense, right? At a restaurant, it's like, look, you have things that need to get done and they just got to get done. And it's like, who's yep. around? Because yep. at the end of the day, if a customer wants an order... Somebody's got to do it. So sometimes it's you. <laughs> Let's kind of take it back. Let's go back to high school. What do you want to be in high school? Believe it or not, actually, it started out I wanted to be an architect. So I, I did start college as a pre-engineering major. And uh, I quickly kind of figured out that I didn't really want to do that. Uh, you know, I, I took you know some of the introductory classes and you know, I didn't find it terribly difficult, but I just thought it was boring. And I just kind of stopped and thought, you know, I don't really want to be sitting at a desk looking over blueprints all day. Um, you know, this is going to drive me nuts. And like a lot of college kids, I was working in a restaurant at the time, though I was waiting tables. Something just clicked in me. And actually, at one point in all that, I, I had this ridiculous idea that I actually wanted to open my own restaurant someday, which I have very much changed my mind on. There is no way I'm ever opening my own restaurant. But, you know, I, I saw myself as being able to run a restaurant. And so that's that's what I wanted to do. Initially, I kind of looked at it more as you know, wanting to be like a general manager type of thing. It took a few months later before the, the idea of becoming a chef would click. So I had waited tables and yeah, I started at one restaurant. I went to another restaurant. Um, I, I was working at an IHOP, actually. You know, late on a Friday night, you know, we were still, a couple of us were there polishing silverware, but we were, you know, done for the night or we we're supposed to be, you know, getting off the clock. And a bunch of people walked in and there was one cook in the kitchen and he needed help. I kind of went back there and stumbled through trying to help do egg orders just to help him out. I actually did okay at it. And, you know, the next week I did it again and then I did it again. And it kind of just became this thing. I would, you know, purposely, you know, kind of take my time with finishing up late on the weekends just so I could go help the guy in the kitchen that was usually by himself. And I, I enjoyed it. And, you know, after a couple of weeks or so of doing that, I, I went to one of the managers one day and I told her I wanted to work in the kitchen and she actually laughed at me. She thought that was the most ridiculous idea that she'd ever heard. But I said, no, I'm serious. I want to do this. And so that's, that's kind of how it started. 
you know, and I had originally had plans of going to culinary school, quickly figured out that I wasn't going to be able to afford that because, you know, that was. That gets pricey. I know someone who went Very, there. very expensive. I mean, you know, I, I don't know what it costs now, but, you know, when I was looking at it 17 years ago, it was fifty to $60,000 for two years worth of school. I mean, basically, you could go to Harvard for the price of going to culinary school. I mean, it was just, it was absurd. So I um, looked around and decided, you know, I had a, I had a friend that was living in Orlando um, you know, I grew up in West Virginia, by the way, so I, I knew that, you know, living in a three stoplight town wasn't exactly going to be the avenue to get, you know, get me the kind of experience that I needed. Um, but I had a friend that was, you know, going to film school in Orlando. I packed my car. I went and slept on his couch for a few weeks until I could get a job and a place. And, you know, off I went. Wow. That's interesting, man. So I just want to kind of take it back. You said you never want to open up your own restaurant. What's the what's the reasoning behind that? I have heard too many horror stories of people sinking their life story or their life savings into opening a restaurant or, you know, where people take their, you know, they liquidate the retirement fund and they put it into a restaurant. And, you know, when you look at the statistics of, you know, the number of restaurants that fail, I mean, percentage wise, I, I think it's, you know, 95% fail within the first year and then, the ones that are left, 95% of those fail in the second year. I'm not that big of a risk taker. If I came into having enough money laying around to do something like that, the last thing that I would put it into would be a restaurant for one thing. You know, but just besides the financial risks of it, you work really hard as a chef, but when it's your own place, forget about ever having a day off ever again. You know, if a pipe bursts at three o'clock in the morning, it's your problem. I just don't really want to live that way. You know, my ego isn't that big. I don't need to see my name on the door. I don't need to be able to stand there and say, yeah, this is mine. I own it. I'm perfectly okay with running somebody else's place. It makes sense. It's like there's so much that goes into it. Sometimes you just want to focus on a few things. You do them well. And the beauty of it is like, you know, managing employees, managing all these things, managing just every single aspect. You know, most people think that, hey, if you're a good cook, yeah, you'll be, but it's not. There's a lot of marketing. There's a lot of business things. There's a lot of like insurance, licenses, taxes, fees. It's you need a team of people who are like sort of working at it together. Big time for sure. Thanks for that advice. Hopefully, like the people who do, because I've heard that thing where it's like if you can get to the third year, you're good. But it's the first two years. It's, it's the first two years that are really tough because it's like you know so many people think that hey, it's just good food or it's like good food is just one small aspect. Because I've been to a lot of restaurants that have good food. But it's like they close down, you know, after one or two years and you're like, ah, crap. Like, you know, what was it? And it's like so many little factors that you just don't know. Now you're you, you're on your friend's couch. So what happened next? You're on your friend's couch. You sort of found a job. Refer to it as my first serious cooking job. And it's a little funny to say it that way. But, uh, you know, I was a you know 19 year old kid from West Virginia that hadn't really done anything. So, uh, you know, the only job I could get was working at SeaWorld. They had, I think, 15 or 16 kitchens on property there. You know, the first month or so, they had me working a couple different ones just because they wanted to kind of size me up and see what I could do and what I was up for. You know, they decided, you know, of course, I, I had to kind of plead with them. You know, I didn't want to, you know, just work in the burger place. And it, I, I didn't move all the way down to Florida to go just cook burgers. And so I had to be very passionate about telling them that, you know, I wanted as much as they could throw at me. I was up for it. But, you know, kind of their flagship restaurant at the time was, you know, a restaurant called Sharks. And it was the only full service restaurant that they had on property. So, you know, and it had, you know, we had sushi grade tuna and we had prime steaks and, you know, things like that. So it was, you know, at least in terms of being in a theme park environment, it was, you know, the closest thing to, you know, really getting to do and learn some, you know, upscale scratch cooking, you know, versus, you know, serving burgers and fries all day. So, um, you know, after a month or so, I got settled in there and uh, I ended up spending 15 months at SeaWorld. Learned a lot. I didn't necessarily learn what I wanted to learn, but uh, it, it, it actually was really good experience for me. So what were the big things that you learned that like really helped you throughout your career at SeaWorld? Well, for one thing, just the volume of business that we did there was pretty incredible. In that full service restaurant, we served 
you know, upwards of 1200 people a day pretty regularly. So it, it was, it was incredibly busy and it was, for the most part, it was a scratch kitchen. We had, you know, coconut shrimp and coconut chicken skewers and, you know, all that got you know, hand cut, hand breaded on site. You know, we had to make our own empanadas, you know, so we, we weren't ordering in a whole lot of, you know, frozen product and just putting it out. You know, we cut steaks, we cut fish, you know, all that was done in that, you know, little outlet kitchen, which like it wasn't very big, uh, wasn't a very big kitchen, but, uh, you know, it was, it was really, really busy all the time. You know, I did learn how to cut meat. I learned how to cut fish. Um, I learned how to be busy. You know, I, I learned speed. And so all, all that, you know, just, you know, between the, the fundamental skills and the, just learning how to work where it's really busy and maintain the mental focus for that. I mean, there were, depending on the time of year, you know, like spring break, you know, the park was open later. So the restaurant would be open later. Uh, you know, there were days, you know, you would be on the line cooking for seven to eight hours straight without a break. Most restaurants aren't going to push you that hard. You know, because, you know, you're either working a.m. or you're working p.m. And even if they're having you do a double, you, you know, you're probably going to have a, a lull in the action in between. But, you know, that kind of afternoon downtime where, you know, a lot of cases, the restaurant closes for a couple hours. That restaurant, you opened at 11 o'clock. And if you were open till nine, it was nonstop from 11 to nine. Like there, there was no break. You know, learning how to be able to turn the focus on and off, um, you know, that that was really big. How much does someone like at that type of restaurant make? As a cook starting out, I started there for about eight dollars an hour. And this was two thousand five, so it would be, it would probably pay more now. Yeah, and then you know after a couple months, they bumped me to I think ten dollars an hour. And of course, at the time, like that that was just so big for me. Yeah, I thought yeah. like, man, I made it. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I mean, long story short, yo know, cooks don't get paid nearly well enough. You know, I think, I think the world's finding that out the hard way right now with what restaurants are going through. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how much that changes. No, that's very interesting. So what sort of made you leave to your next opportunity? You know, I mean, working at a theme park, it was it was fun, but I wanted to get into really, you know, higher end properties, um, you know, hotels and resorts and things like that. So an a, a opportunity came up you know, there in Orlando to be able to go work at the Omni Hotel. Yeah, they're a very good chain. I went to one. Good company to work for. Really enjoyed my time there. You know, I, I wasn't there all that long. I was there about nine months, I think, because another kind of opportunity popped up. And this was really a once-in-a-lifetime thing, especially being from West Virginia. The Greenbrier had closed down for a while and went through renovation. And they reopened. and you know, they were looking for people. So I didn't expect to even get a response, but I applied. They offered me a job and it was one of those things, you know, I had to, I had to move back to West Virginia and I had to go. But what was so special about the Greenbrier? I don't know how much you've heard about this, but it's only a couple hours from DC um, and it's tucked away in the mountains of West Virginia. You would almost never know it was there, but the U.S. government built a bunker underneath of the hotel for the Cold War. So if Russia ever you know, dropped a nuclear bomb somewhere, that's where they were going to evacuate Congress to, is underneath of that hotel. And it was a secret for the longest time. Um, and it wasn't until I think the early or mid-90s that some reporter got wind of something. He, he, he found out something and did this big investigative report that kind of blew the lid on the whole thing. But for 50 years, that was... You know, the best kept secret in America. Things got bad with Russia. That's where they were going to go hide everybody. And, you know, we're talking walls that were three feet thick of concrete. Wow, that's serious. Yeah, it big deal. And even now, you know, they do tours of it for one thing, but at least they were renting some of it out as space for like Fortune 500 companies to put their servers and stuff because like it's bomb proof. Like there is no safer place in America for you to have your backup servers to be. So just historically that, and I mean, the place has been around forever. Um, and then just in terms of, you know, its reputation as a luxury property, at one point they were one of only, I think, nine hotels in the world that had a five-star rating as a hotel and a five-star rating in their main dining room. 
you know, they have since lost those things just because the guidelines have changed so much. But I mean, just a historic property, you know, and if you're from West Virginia, you've heard about it. Like you, you pretty much grow up in the shadow of that place. And it's such a big deal hearing about it your whole life and you get to go work there. You know, at, at the time, the chef was a certified master chef. There's only, I think, 72 of them in the U.S. To get to go work under a chef like that, you, that just doesn't happen very often either. Yeah. So how is it working under a chef like that? It's intense, to say the least. And obviously, he's not there anymore. He, he passed away, unfortunately. But there's a lot of things about how we were managed at that time that wouldn't be allowed anymore. I mean, the way we were talked to, yelled at, screamed at, I mean, I had stuff thrown at me. It was like the old school stuff like you hear about. Okay. Like those drama TV shows, like it was literally that. Almost, yeah. And like, I mean, the first six weeks in particular, you know, they put you through the ringer because they want to see if you're, if you're built for it. And actually, they used to talk about it a little bit. You know, they, they almost kind of styled their onboarding process like you know, boot camp in the military, you know, they, they wanted to either break you down or, you know, it, it was either they were going to make you better. Or they were going to make you quit. And like, there was no in between for the first month or so. I mean, I went into work almost every day, like sick to my stomach thinking I'm going to get fired or whatever. And finally, you know, things started clicking for me and, you know, one good day led to another good day. And, you know, and before you know it, you know, they're backing off of you just a little bit and you're getting a little bit more confident and you're getting a little bit more of a moxie. And a few days later, you're, you're one of the guys. And, and at that point, it, it was awesome. And, and that's still, you know, I kind of refer to it as being the Marine Corps of cooking because it is intense like that. But really, you know, the brotherhood of it is one of those things. I mean, there's so, there's so many guys that I'm connected to that we didn't necessarily even work there at the same time. But like we're Greenbrier, so we're the same. And so, you know, I can call any one of these guys and say, yo, I, you know, do you know so-and-so or I got a question about this? And, you know, we've all got each other's backs because we have the Greenbrier in common and, and, and it's just different. Wow, that's interesting. What, they made you do push-ups and stuff? Like what no. made it so <laughs> It's just, it's, it's hard to explain it really. I mean, it was just, I mean, the standards were so high they pushed us so hard. It was one of those things where if if you didn't have serious aspirations on you know wanting to be an executive chef, you didn't want to be there. You know, there was no way you were going to put yourself through that. And pretty much everybody that I worked with that I have kept up with over the years, whether I see them on Facebook or I see them on LinkedIn, they're essentially, you know, the executive chef or they own a restaurant or whatever it is, they all, you know, lived out their dream of doing what they wanted to do with their career. And it was, you know, ultimately getting that experience and, and going, going through the fire, working there that eventually paved the way for it. So once things got easier, how was it? Honestly, it was a lot of fun because it's just different. You're, you're not going to walk, walk into very many operations where, you know, the quality of cooks that you're next to every day are as high as that. So it's almost like being on the Olympic team. Everybody you work with is one of the best of the best that you're ever going to meet anywhere. So the competitive nature of it was just amazing. Like we, we were all trying to outdo each other every day, but we all talked shit at each other. It wasn't malicious. Like it was all in fun. I look back on it and like, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Like it, it was awesome. Do you mind sharing like a funny story that you're allowed to share from there? Um, yeah. <laughs> or one that stands out? I remember, I think it was my third or fourth day there. I hadn't been there for very long at all. And I got pulled in to help some people prep some stuff. And like, I was doing something else and I had just finished and they're like, Hey, come over here, help us finish this. And they're like, yeah, sure. And so I jump in and he's, the guy tells me, you know, we're bread and veal or whatever it was. He's like, you know, here's your egg wash. Here's the flour. This is the finished one. Just make them look like this. Okay, got it. So, you know, I'm bread and veal and Chef Timmons, the, the certified master chef, comes along. You know, he, he sees me and he says, he asks, 
you know, well, what's this? And I said, well, it's the egg wash. He says, well, what all's in it? And I said, chef, I, I don't know. And he says, well, is there even any salt and pepper in it? And I said, chef, I'm sorry, I didn't make it. They just asked me to help them bread. I, I really couldn't tell you if there's salt and pepper in it or not. And he says, okay, well, who, who made it? I said, chef, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and, and so he kind of ends up, giving me a little bit of a mini ass chewing. He takes everything, he throws it all away. Um, he shows me how to make egg wash the way he liked it. And I've never, to this day, I've never seen anybody else do it that way. But the veal came out beautiful. Um, and so it was one of those things, like I was scared to death there for a second because I'm brand new and, you know, this really intense, and he was Irish, so he had a thick accent and you could tell he wasn't very happy. And that was like the only real run in I ever really had with Chef Timmons. You know, every other time, you know, he was usually, I think we had a hundred people that worked in the kitchen total. So you wouldn't get a whole lot of one-on-one -on -one time with him. You know, I think there was like six restaurants and you know, it was a lot of stuff going on. So he, he was all over the place, but you know, the guy kind of gets in your face like that on your, on your third or fourth day there. It was, was a little intimidating. So how you stayed there for about a year. What, what was your next move? Yeah, it was an unfortunate time to be there. They were kind of going through negotiations with the union. It was a union property. That was a little bit sticky and it was a highly seasonal property. So in the winter time, most of us were laid off for most of the winter. And then you're coming out of that and they're talking strike. And it was just, I, I couldn't really afford to stay there with that potentially lingering over my head. So a friend of mine, guy I worked with there at the Greenbrier, he took his first sous chef job at, at a little property up the road about an hour from there. I went to go work there um, with him which that whole place was a mess for a, a lot of reasons. Um, you know, the first chef that was there, you know, ended up being a, a mentor of mine for a really long time. He unfortunately just passed away a couple of months ago. Both he and my friend left, I want to say four months into my tenure there, you know, both of them left. And then the place really went to hell in a handbasket after that. The, the next chef that they brought in was, was a disaster, both personally and professionally. Um, so it was, it was pretty tumultuous there for a while after that. That said, that may have been some of the best experience that I ever got because, you know, there for a while we didn't have a chef. And so I was, you know, practically running the place. And there, there I am. I was 23 years old. I was making 1150 an hour, you know, and I had to do all the ordering. I had to do all the scheduling. Uh, I was working 70 hours a week. You know, it was crazy. I was running for my life every day. But I learned a ton, and then they bring in a chef, and it ended up not really going very well. But I learned a lot of what not to do, um, which sometimes that's some of the best ways to learn things. But again, that was one of those things that, you know, while I was there, it was just like, God, this is a mess. What am I doing here? But like, I look back on it, and there's been a ton of takeaways from what I got out of that experience. I have a question. So, what's a sous chef? Because I know, like you said, you had never hired someone that spelled it wrong. You see people spell it wrong. And I don't know. It's only four letters, so I don't know how you could spell it wrong. But what is a sous chef? Okay, so sous in French just means under. So if you're a sous chef, that means you're kind of next in charge working directly under the chef. Um, and there can be varying levels of sous chef. Um, so, you know, there's an executive sous chef, which... Typically, those are reserved for kind of like your larger properties. Like if you're just a small restaurant, you're probably not going to be an executive sous chef because, you know, the chef can do all that stuff. So he's not going to need that. And it can vary wildly just depending on who you're working for and where. You know, like, again, going back to like a smaller restaurant, especially like a mom and pop place, you know, there's the chef that, you know, he probably tends to micromanage things a little bit more. And, you know, as a sous chef... You know, you're probably really just a glorified cook in a lot of cases. I've seen it. Uh, and I've talked to a lot of guys that have had jobs like that. But, you know, the arenas that I work in, like being in clubs, you know, if you're a sous chef, you might be in charge of an area. So, like, I have, you know, a sous chef in banquets. I have a sous chef in, in the restaurant. And they really kind of run the day-to-day -day of those departments versus rather rather than really just kind of working next to me all the time. I really kind of work through them uh, to run those areas of the property. Okay. Okay. So 
then your next job, you kind of got it at a club, right? You, it's a country club. So how is the environment of a country club like different? There's a lot of things that are different about it. You know, for, for one, I think that the biggest thing that I would tell somebody is the nice things about clubs is there's stability, because at the end of the day, they're essentially member-owned most of the time. Like there are some that, that kind of operate under, you know, like there's Club Core and some of the other like corporate groups that, that own some of these properties. But most of them, you know, if, if you're a member, you know, say the initiation fee is $70,000 to be able to join. When, when you're writing that check and you're joining the club, you're, you're essentially kind of becoming part owner of the club. And there's good and bad with that, but the big thing is they're not going out of business, and they generally don't have to manage the finances really shrewdly because you know it, it's kind of their second home, and and they want the same people around, and they want to get consistent staff that that you know they know them, the member knows the the staff. It's it's almost an extension of family. So you know, generally speaking, club members to at least some extent, actually care about the people that serve them and, and they want to make sure that they're taken care of. Uh, you know, for one thing, like at my club, you know, for employees, they pay the health insurance premium 100%. And I've never worked anywhere that did that. Yeah, I mean, most restaurants don't even pay benefits. Right. There are things like that that you, you'll find in clubs where as an employee, you're, you're looked after a little bit more than, than what you would be. You know, the, there's other things like, you know, you might work in one area and it's slow, you know, due to season or whatever it is. So maybe they can't give you a full five days, but, you know, they might be able to move you around and put you over in another department. So you'll get get your hours. You know, clubs try to look after their people that way because, you know, they they don't really want them to leave. You know, they, they want to get good people in and they want to hang on to them um, versus, you know, if you're working in a hotel or something and it's just slow that week, they'll say, well, You've got paid time off, so you can use that to cover the gap versus, you know, in a club where, you know, generally we'll do everything we can to try to find some hours for you. But, you know, on the flip side of it, clubs are a challenge because every member is essentially part owner and they know it and they expect it and, you know, they want what they want. And if you overcook their steak tonight, you know, unlike in a hotel where, you know, tomorrow they're checking out. You know, if they're a club member, they probably eat there three nights a week. They're going to remind you about it the next time you see them. So if, if you make a mistake, if you miss something, you know, there's a, there's a saying in clubs that the bad guests don't check out. Uh, you know, they're, they're members. So you're, you're going to see them again later in the week. And, and they're going to remind you, hey, you screwed it up last time. Make sure you get it right this time. So now, you know, once you get to, to learn some of the names and kind of what their preferences and things like that are, it gets to be a little bit more predictable. But, you know, it can be it can be a little tough to keep up sometimes with, you know, if, if you're a restaurant, a medium rare steak's a medium rare steak. But versus in a club, you have one person's perception of medium rare versus another person's perception of medium rare. And so, you know, we get orders that come in and we'll look at the name on the check. You know, I got you know, I'm not going to say his name, but I got one guy that if I serve him a standard medium rare to him, it's medium well, and he'll send it back overcooked every time. So, you know, there's things like that, that we just have to be aware of where is in a, in a hotel or a restaurant, you probably don't have to deal with as much of that sort of stuff. And so you worked at the Atlanta athletic club and now you work at the Dunwood country club. So how is it currently working at your place? And, you know, what are the things that kind of set you apart in your career? Um, so, you know, I, th this is the third club that I've worked in and they're all different. Every membership's a little bit different. Um, uh, you know, obviously you bounce from city to city and, you know, every city's got a little bit of a different vibe. You know, the, some of the dining preferences and what people are exposed to can be, um, a, a little bit different. Some clubs are a little bit more formal. Like my club in Charlotte was very formal and I, I wonder if they're still the same way now, but you know, to be on the main floor in the clubhouse there, you had to have a jacket on and they didn't allow jeans ever for anything. Club I'm at now is much more casual. I mean, it's very much more a, a casual family oriented club, which, you know, that's taken some adjustment for me because, you know, the club in Charlotte was more of a, a, a destination club, whereas they didn't, people lived 20, 25 minutes away. And so, you know, the attitude was, you know, let's get dressed up and go to the club versus, you know, we're kind of nestled in neighborhoods here. This club is much more casual. We're very, very busy with golf. We're busy with tennis. 
people, you know, they go, they finish playing tennis and they want to come over and they want to eat. And, you know, they're in shorts and a t-shirt. And it is a very, very different vibe versus other clubs that I've worked at. And it's not to say that it's good or bad. It's just different. You know, one thing that, you know, I can kind of speak to a little bit with just in being in three different clubs that were all, you know, had a very different kind of vibe and attitude about them. Um, I've gotten to be much more adaptable than I used to be just because, you know, I've seen, you know, a variety of different things. And, you know, even within, you know, the club that I'm at currently, it's, it is a very diverse membership. You know, we've got a really active young membership. We've got, you know, members that have been there for 30 or 40 years. You know, even within that group, you know, we're right around the corner from one of the larger Jewish communities in the Atlanta area. So, you know, we have a few Jewish members. We do a fair amount of, you know, mitzvahs and things like that, which I had never done any of these before. So, you know, th- there's a lot of different groups to, you know, ha- have to, not necessarily cater to, but just be aware of kind of what their preferences and their demands are. So, you know, I've seen a lot, I've done a lot versus, you know, when I was in Charlotte, that membership was very kind of in unison most of the time. You know, there was, it was pretty easy to find what that kind of main primary lane was that we needed to be in. And we just didn't stray too far left or right. Generally, we made everybody happy versus with a much more diverse membership like this, we have to be able to juggle a lot more. We have to be more multiple in things that we do. Um, we have to be able to pivot more often with some of the special events and you know being able to change our menus more often. That's something that took some getting used to to me. You know, I'd roll a menu out and two weeks later people were bored with it. Whereas in the other clubs, you know, once you found a few things that they liked, as long as they could always get that, you never heard a word from them. You know, you had other parts of the menu you could play with, you could try things, and that was cool, but just don't take my chicken such and such away. And as long as I can get that, I'm happy. Whereas this membership is, is they're, they're, they can be a little bit more demanding in terms of just wanting to see and, and get different things. Yeah, no, I mean, that's it's just very cool how even within the industry, there's just differences in different areas. Now, what are some mistakes to avoid What is someone who's trying to take this career seriously because there are so many different types of personalities in the restaurant. What makes someone successful? What are the things that people have to avoid if they want to be serious about a career? I think early in your career, you need to be, and this is something that I actually did a really good job with, but you need to be choosy about the jobs that you take. I see far too many cooks nowadays that, you know, they do three months here, they do six months there. They'll make jumps because somebody's going to give them another 50 cents an hour. And, you know, it's not so much a matter of the whole paying your dues thing, but if you're only spending three or four months somewhere, you're not going to learn anything. That's like you, you, you see it, you get exposed to it, but you're not giving yourself enough time and enough repetition to actually learn how to do it and really get it down. So that part's important. But, you know, the other thing is, going back to being choosy about the jobs you take is it's seeking out the kind of people that you want to work for, the kind of environments that you want to work in. I'm a big fan of hotels and resorts for for young cooks coming up because, you know, you could go in there and they might have three or four restaurants, they've got banquets, whatever. There's a lot that you can you can stay there for a year or two and potentially work in three or four different environments on that property but it's still the same chef. You're still working with a lot of the same people, but you're seeing different things versus, you know, if you're bouncing from one restaurant group to another, you know, every six months, you're getting used to different people and different management styles, different cultures, all that stuff. And like I said, you're not giving any of it enough time to actually kind of sink in um, and and really be able to kind of embrace and, and really learn it and own it. Like, you know, deep inside of you versus, you know, if you're just bouncing around and you saw this menu and you saw this menu and you saw that menu, but you never learned any of it from top to bottom. You put in three years, but you're not really coming away with three years worth of actual fundamental skills that you're going to be able to bank on later on. Who are the type of people who should like sort of avoid these types of careers? Like there's some people who are just not built for it. So someone who's not, I guess, what kind of people are just really not built for it? Like you kind of see them and you're like, this person's not going to last long. 
I, I think people that tend to want to give up on things too easy, you know, something's hard or, you know, you're going to get frustrated and, and want to quit a job just because you don't get along with one person or whatever it is. If you're that kind of quick tempered and not, not committed, this, this probably isn't a great career for you. I mean, cause you know, I'll be fairly candid about it and I'm not going to get into a lot of details, but I've been with my current employer five years. I can't tell you how many frustrations I've had with this job over the course of five years. And even, you know, the last previous employers, you know, three and a half years and two of them. And there were all kinds of things that were frustrating. But, you know, if your response is you want to quit every time you get frustrated or you don't like somebody or you don't get along with this person or you don't agree with this one thing that somebody asked you to do, you're never going to learn enough because you're constantly starting over and you're not going to prove yourself as one of those people that's committed enough for the organization to commit to you and you be able to actually move up the ladder. I mean, you've been in the restaurant industry, right? Well, 15, 16 years, more than that. How has the industry changed over time? It's going to be interesting to see what happens going forward. We can talk about food trends and, you know, things that have happened over the years. You know, I mean, obviously ethnic food and street food and all that type of stuff have gotten hip. It's gotten trendy. The industry is shifting more and more towards like casual quick service. You know, you're seeing concepts like Chipotle and, you know, I'm sure there in New York, you guys have a ton of different things that kind of model the same type of thing where it's walk up order. It's, it's thrown together real quick right in front of you to hand it. Uh, it's not the traditional sit down, spend an hour and a half on dinner type of experience because people don't have time for that anymore. You know, so all that's really interesting. But I think the thing that's going to be interesting now is with, you know, the labor shortage, you know, coming off of COVID. And, you know, I've, I've written a couple articles about this with club and resort business where we talk about some adjustments we've made at the club. But, you know, I, I kind of wonder, you know, what's the industry going to do? Wages have to go up. You know, obviously we have raised wages that hasn't necessarily paid off just yet. I mean, it's helped with retention, but it's it's not really doing anything in terms of, you know, the quality of applicants. Um, I think when all the restaurants had to close up when COVID happened and a lot of people got sent home, there's a lot of people that that happened to that had worked in restaurants for a while. They're not coming back. That's a problem that the industry is going to have to deal with. How do you get the next generation of people to want to work in this field? And, you know, if we're going to sit and rest on the, well, you're going to have to work nights, you're going to have to work weekends, you're going to have to work holidays, you're going to have to work for less than what you could make elsewhere, and you're not going to have a social life, and you know, you're going to have to miss out on a whole bunch of stuff. If we're going to stick to that because, well, that's just the way it's always been, then the industry's not going to make it. There's a lot more places that are going to have to close up shop because the, the people that we need to believe in it don't believe in that stuff. And so the, there's going to have to be a major paradigm shift. So you mentioned like, you know, that a lot of sacrifices that you said lack of social life, nights and weekends. So can you expand a little more on that? Yeah. So, you know, one of the articles that I wrote for, you know, Club and Resort, um, you know, I said that, you know, I, I look back on my 20s, you know, and I'm, I'm 36 at the moment, but I look back on my 20s and I don't think I have a single story to tell that doesn't somehow involve work. I'm not really proud of saying that, but the unfortunate reality of what this business has been, you know, I didn't take vacations. I didn't request time off, you know, a day or two here, or there once in a while. But like, you know, I didn't travel. I didn't do any of that stuff. Like everything was work, work, work. I mean, one year, actually, I did this twice. Two years in a row, I took vacation time to go work at another restaurant for free because it was some stuff that I wanted to go get exposed to, you know, and you know, it's one thing that, you know, I'd like to see, you know, organizations like mine do more of is if we can set up an opportunity for, you know, a sous chef or somebody to go spend a few days at, you know, maybe it's another club in Chicago or whatever it is, you know, send them for a few days, pay them for their time. We're making an investment in them. Go work over there for a couple of days, hang out, take notes, come back to us with ideas. But I had to go do that on my own a couple of times. And so, you know, I mean, ultimately, I made it to where I want to be. You know, I make very good money. I, you know, I'm the executive chef. I have that stitched on my chest. But, you know, there's a lot of the younger cooks coming up that, you know, they they wouldn't do that. 
And I'm not necessarily saying that they should, but it's, it's what it took for me to get to where I'm at. So what is, and you don't have to share your salary, but what does an executive chef sort of make? Like what does a sous chef make? You know, what's the range and what does an executive chef sort of make? So this can vary quite a bit based on what city you're in and and what part of the industry you're in. And unfortunately, the restaurant guys typically get, you know, the worst. They get the lowest salaries because restaurants barely kind of scrape by. So, I mean, I've seen restaurant executive chefs you know, jobs being posted for as little as $55,000 a year. And that that wasn't necessarily in some small town somewhere where cost of living was negligible. Up to, you know, there's some restaurants that might pay 90 to 100,000, maybe even more if you're really high profile and it's a really busy, really profitable restaurant. You know, hotels can pay anywhere from, you know, if, you know, if you're like a downtown like city hotel, you know, 75 to 80 versus, you know, you get into the the bigger resorts, those might be more like 150. And then clubs, the range is even bigger. I mean, if you're in a, at a really small club in a small town, they might only be paying 60 or 70 versus, you know, you get to some of the bigger clubs, um, you know, they might be paying 200, 220. You know, you get yeah, you know, there's some of these super elite clubs like near like near where you're at, like out on Long Island and, and places like that where, you know, they'll lure some really high profile restaurant chef out of the city because, you know, their members want New York City food, but they don't want to have to drive back into the city after work to get it. Um, and I mean, I've seen some of those guys getting paid 300 plus. It really kind of depends on your background and, you know, what kind of club you're lucky enough to, you know, be able to get an opportunity with. Generally speaking, you know, the private club chefs um, on average typically get the best deal. But the biggest thing is, you know, clubs don't want you to leave versus, you know, a restaurant. If you're, if you're there for a year or two, you know, they figure they got your money's, they got their money's worth out of you and they'll just go get another one versus, you know, it's always a transition in a club when there's a new chef and, Members have to get used to it. They have to learn the members. Members might be unhappy. So it's you know, they generally try to minimize that. Yeah. Need to get a culinary degree to sort of, do you see a lot of people in your position have culinary degrees? I would say that most do have it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an outlier. Um, I, I don't have it. Nobody, you know, has ever really given me a hard time about not having it. Fortunately, you know, spending some time working at a place like the Greenbrier where, you know, it was very, very high end and it was, you know, a classical European kind of brigade system. The The fundamentals were there. They really drilled all that stuff into us. It was very high discipline. Ultimately, I have any skill that anybody's ever going to ask for. You know, they're not going to, you know, at least I, I've never had anybody tell me, yeah, you don't have a culinary degree, so you're not qualified. No, Nobody's ever said that to me. Okay. I mean, that's, that's good to know. So now looking back, you, you know, you're 36, you've done a lot of things. What are you most proud of in your career? Well, I think I think overall, I look back on the fact that I was brave enough at 18 years old to drop out of college and go pursue this crazy dream of being a chef. Almost everybody in my family thought I was throwing my life away. My grandma told me you're making a huge mistake, you know, and even even people that were supportive of it, they they told me like, you know, you're never going to make it a decent living. The fact that I was brave enough to make the decision at 18 years old, I stuck with it. I bet on myself and I won. You know, I think that's probably the biggest source of pride because, you know, for one, like I said, just being brave enough to do it, you know, because, you know, you're 18 years old. Somebody's whispering in your ear, this isn't going to work. I mean, there's a lot of people that don't do what they really want to do because somebody told them they couldn't. I mean, just having the wherewithal to say, you know what? This might not be the safe bet, but this is really what I want to do. And I, I went and I made it work. How does it impact other parts of your life? For example, like, do you want to cook after a long day, right? You're cooking all day. You're dead. How do you view other restaurants? Like when you go in, right? I'm probably like, oh, okay, you know, this is good. Whereas you're looking at a restaurant. So how does that impact? Like, how does it impact like cooking at home? I do cook at home, but... I always laugh when my wife tells me stories about, you know, she'll meet a new coworker or, or she'll meet somebody and 
you know, it comes up that her husband's a chef and they're like, oh, that must be so awesome having a chef at home. And it's like, no, he doesn't cook like that at home. Trust me. I, you know, I don't have time. Or resources, right? Because kitchens just have... I was even reading that, like, the reason eggs taste better at restaurants because it's like the grill is whatever X temperature for a certain amount of times. And, you know, to get that at home, you don't have that at home. Yeah, it's it's definitely different. I, I there, There's things I do at the restaurant all the time that, you know, I can't, I can't do at home. So, you know, I tend to be very health conscious. So, you know, a lot of food that I eat at home is typically very simple and very plain Jane. If you saw what I eat at home most of the time, you wouldn't guess that I'm a chef. I can, I can assure you. Uh, you know, and as far as when I go out to eat, you know, I notice everything. As hard as I try to turn the radar off, I notice everything. But I'm not there to be hypercritical of things. You know, if, if me and my wife are out to dinner, I'm trying to have a good time, you know, spending some time with my wife and not having to cook. And especially, you know, here lately, you know, the, the industry's struggling so much. I mean, we, we went out to dinner last night and the food was okay, but the whole experience was pretty painful. I mean, it just, it took a long time, but like, I get it. I know what's going on. And so um, I'm generally pretty quick to give the benefit of the doubt on stuff like that. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, it, it's always interesting. So like you've done a lot. What's next for you? Like, what's the dream? What's, what's, what's the goal now? That's an interesting question. You know, I don't really know at this point, you know, career-wise, you know, what, you know, like, what would be the crowning achievement? You know, there's part of me that's kind of always had the goal of uh, wanting to, you know, live and work in Chicago or New York. You know, I mean, they, those are just two really phenomenal food Look, cities. if you're in New York, and- I'm going to, it doesn't matter how much it costs, <laughs> I'm going to go and eat. And I, again, I, I know it's going to be good. If an opportunity to do one of those things came up, you know, that that would be something that, you know, I would really want to do just because in the, in the back of my mind, that's been there for a really long time. You know, there's a certification that I want to go for, you know, at some point it's, uh, you know, so I'm a certified executive chef currently. How do you get that? Is that like a test? How do you get that certification? You have to do a written exam and then you have to do a cooking practical exam. Um, and then, you know, there's some hoops that you have to jump through as far as, um, documenting continuing education courses and things like that. You know, CEC, I didn't find it to be all that difficult, really. It was just, you know, it's a matter of jumping through the hoops with, you know, putting the time in um, with the, you know, the continuing education hours. You know, beyond that, the ultimate would be, you know, certified master chef. I don't really have aspirations on that one. Like, I feel like I could make a run at being able to take that exam if I wanted to. But I, I would have to go back and redo some things. Um, you know, you really have to kind of get into the competition segment and, and all that. And with, with everything that I would have to do and the time I would have to put in, uh, my wife would probably divorce me. I don't really want to do that. But kind of the next best thing after that would be, you know, through the Culinary Institute of America, they have their own certification process. And the, and the top one is Pro Chef Level 3. At some point, you know, in the next couple of years, I'd, I'd like to start working on that. No, I just really want to thank you for your time. Before we sort of wrap up, you know, what advice would you have for someone, for yourself, someone like you, yourself, 18 years old, right? They want to get into this industry. What advice would you sort of have for them? They're really interested, right? They want to become an executive chef. What would you tell them? You know, I would say, you know, if this is something you're interested in doing, you need to be prepared to invest in it completely for a couple of years to even really get a full picture and be able to come full circle with, do you want to keep doing it? You know, like, I mean, I started out, I was working in, you know, chain restaurants in West Virginia. And obviously that wasn't the kind of experience I needed, but I went home and I read every single day books about different chefs, um, different cookbooks, whatever it was, books about, you know, the history of cuisine. You really have to be prepared to get pretty, go pretty deep down the proverbial rabbit hole to really soak up everything you can. And, you know, if you're learning more and you don't want to keep learning about it, maybe it's not really something that you want. But you have to be prepared to do that for a couple of years to really get a good idea of, you know, how bad do you really want to do it? Um, and if, you know, you, you keep reading more and it, and it still fascinates you and it's still like, man, like, I want to learn even more, keep at it. But I, I would say... You know, as far as work goes, like early on, you know, you might have to go take a job at an Applebee's or something like that. You know, if, if that's what's available to you, if that's the only job you can get, 
you're going to have to do that. But, you know, take that job seriously. Find something about it where you can come away with a fundamental skill that is marketable. If you can get on to the grill station in a chain restaurant, if you can get really good at, at steak temperatures, that's something. That's a skill that you can walk walk away from. And, and maybe you're trying to get a job at a nice hotel or whatever it is. And maybe there's a whole lot of experience that you don't have. But you but if you can look at that chef and say, Chef, I cook this many steaks a night, and I only get two recooks a week. If you can do that. You're marketable, and eventually somebody's going to take a chance on you. You know, you're showing you're passionate. You have this skill. You've learned this much. You're up for learning the rest. That'll get you really far. Yeah. No. I mean, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's something everybody goes out to eat at a restaurant, but they really don't know what goes behind the scenes. They have no idea. They they really don't know. And all these, it takes time to make those the orders run smoothly, right? There's so many people, so many things that are going on, so many things that are going wrong that we just never hear about. But, you know, you guys work your magic. Well, that's that's on a good night. Things go wrong, but we don't let anybody see it. All right. So I just really want to thank you for your time. I hope the person who's you at 18 listens to it and I hope they dive in and, you know, I hope they can climb the ranks just like you did, Jeremy. Well, ho- hopefully. Good luck to them. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information was valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and will go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash no degree inc. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Janaid Iqbal, spelled J-O-N-A-E-D, last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem, nodegree.com. Yeah, so you got no degree, no problem, any problem, we can solve them. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving, growing and knowing. Wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. If you didn't know, now you know. Let's sing that again, everybody. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving. We're growing and knowing. The wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. No degree. No problem, any problem we can solve them. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving. We growing in the knowing, the wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. Yeah.